Why don't we pray? Oh, Father, um, I pray that you would release the gifts of your spirit here. I pray that we would become aware of your presence with us. And so, Father, we say, come Holy Spirit, but we know, we know that you were here before us. And so we join you now in the work that you've already started. I pray, Lord, that that would also become our paradigm for how we approach all of our time. That we are going into a space that you already occupy, that you're already at work, and we are joining you. And so, Father, with that, we pray that you would speak to us today. We pray that, that you would speak and reveal your word to us. We pray that, that we would learn and hear from you, and we pray that we would look more like you. So be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Whew. You know, I, just before we get started, I just want to just say that there are some times where um, we sing worship songs, and, and I find myself just, this is me personally, and I'm not saying I can't worship with other types of songs, but when there are songs that we're actually singing through the resurrection story, when we're singing through what Jesus did for us, it just does something different inside me. And I can't, like, it, fills me, it fills me with some kind of a, like, like a joy that I just can't contain and I don't want to stop worshiping. And I'm not saying that, that there's not other songs that can do some things as well, but just when we're singing about what Jesus did, it's really hard to not be connected to that moment and just be overwhelmed with love. And so um, I don't know why I'm telling you that. I just had that experience while we were sitting there, and, and it kind of caught me by surprise because I know that, I mean, we've sung that song before that we just finished with, but it just, like, it led us through the story of Holy Week, and that's going to be the thing that we, you know, in, in 35 days, we got Resurrection Day, and there's just something about those songs that bring my mind to that place that just brings me joy. So with that, I guess maybe I'll just get to work and quit telling you about the things that are going on in my head, which gets dangerous. Uh, but as we move towards Holy Week and Resurrection Day, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark. This winter, we're examining how the ministry of Jesus that, that we see in the Gospel of Mark, how Jesus executing the unfolding plan of God, all of this, how it defied culture, it defied religion, and it defied civil authorities. We're doing this to observe that, that in Scripture, we've got a template a template that, that emerges from the actions of Jesus. We've got a model that we can use as we seek to do the stuff that Jesus did in response to what he did for us. So in response to what we just sang, we're led to the place to do the same thing that we just sang because he taught us how to do it. Now, so far, we, we've seen purposeful defiance. Now, I, I put that word in there specifically as a reminder for me because Honestly, most of the defiance of my life has not been purposeful. Um, it's been more, uh, well, there, there's several adjectives that we can use for it, but, but purposeful isn't necessarily one of them. Um, but we see purposeful defiance that also brings real consequences. As the defiance continues, we feel that these consequences are beginning to build. We, when we read the narrative of Scripture, we can't miss it. There's like a building tension that happens as we get deeper into the Gospel of Mark. We know that the consequences will continue to build towards this culmination that we're going to celebrate together in 35 days, the day that we know is Resurrection Day or the day that we know is Easter. 
Now, the passage that we consider today is right in the middle of a section in the Gospel of Mark that, that kind of begins when, uh, in, in Mark chapter 6 with Jesus being rejected in Nazareth by the people that thought that they knew him the best. Um, that's what uh, we, we considered last week, looking at defiance. Um, that event, that, that rejection, launches Jesus into a mission that's both Jew and Gentile. The mission, the, the, the target of that mission is both the Jews and the Gentiles. It's a mission that he also commissions his disciples to participate in with his authority. Now, we know that that event foreshadows the, the thing that occurs before Jesus ascends to heaven. It foreshadows when he commissions all of his followers to his mission, mission, which is why we are looking intently at how he defied, what he defied, and all of the things that he did, because we're commissioned to do the same. So during this section of the Gospel of Mark, if you read from 6 to where we're going to pick up with 7, we see that Jesus performed some pretty crazy miracles, some pretty awesome signs and wonders. He fed tens of thousands of people from just a few fishes, a few loaves of bread. He walked on water, which honestly is one of those, like, the battles of what we're going to pick as we're marching towards the end of, of, of the, the Gospel of Mark. How do we miss talking about the fact that he walked on water? The reason that we're forgetting, or that we're going to kind of move past it, I'm just going to reference it here, is because he did it, and he did a lot of, like, this is just what he did. That For Jesus, that's a normal thing. It's a huge thing for me, but for Jesus, it's just what Jesus did. He's seen crowds grow and grow as people try to build a paradigm of understanding what's going on. This is something that, that has happened through the ages. People try to build a paradigm for how to explain what God is doing. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, but we call that process religion. We also see a defiance in this passage in Mark that causes a movement from the inward to the outward. It's something we can't miss. It's something that we can't miss if we really are to do the stuff that Jesus did, that the work that he did, the act that he did, what we just sang about, can't stop inside of me. If it stops inside of me, then the work is dead. And so there's a movement from the inward to the outward. That in and of itself, this movement to the inward, from the inward to the outward is a defiance that when the template is adapted to our own actions, when those actions are related to the mission of Jesus, all of this begins with an awareness, and that's what Jesus is going to confront today. He's going to talk about an awareness of cleanliness, which I think that we in our time can use interchangeably with the word worthiness. And so when we read cleanliness in the passage today, it isn't a stretch to also talk about worthiness. We're going to see Jesus confront the things that religion said, made people unclean. So with our extension today, we're going to see Jesus confront the things that religion said that made people unworthy. We're going to see the actions that religion said made people unworthy. Even the people that, that religion says are unworthy just because by right of birth, they just are unworthy. They are unclean. 
all of this will be defied with a relational paradigm. This is a paradigm that examines how we see our worth, a paradigm that examines how we see the worth of others, and a paradigm of how the way we see worthiness in others demonstrates what we truly believe. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. We're going to see righteous ritual, righteous action, righteous relationship all come under fire today as Jesus engages and defies religious leaders and religious expectations. In doing so, he's building a template for evaluation that we can utilize with our own rituals, our own actions, and our own relationships. So we're going to begin together in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. One day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they have immersed their hands in the water. This is but one of the many traditions that they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. Looking at my kids. (laughs) The problem is they're sitting with my mom, and so that kind of reflected back on me pretty fast. (laughs) Wow, I didn't expect that to... All right, maybe there's a lesson in there, a sermon for another day. But anyway... But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Wow. That landed, and we know that it will um, based on what happens after he taught this, but we don't have to exercise our analytical prowess here uh, very intensely to see the defiance in this exchange. Now, it starts actually with the fact that he didn't answer the issue that they brought to him. I mean, he didn't even speak to that at all. He spoke right past them. It starts with the action, obviously the action of his disciples. 
But Jesus finishes this exchange with a scathing indictment that speaks right past the issue of washed hands or clean hands into the very heart of the matter of worthiness or cleanliness, just straight cut to the bone. Before we get into that, we got to examine a little bit of, of the, the relational terrain that Jesus is navigating. Now, Pharisees and religious leaders known as scribes are traveling from Jerusalem to where Jesus is, and, and this is about a four-day jaunt, four-and-a-half-day jaunt into the countryside. Uh, for us, that's a long walk. For them, with time moving slower in, in their context without vehicles, this is, it's not a huge exertion, but it's an exertion. This is a work trip that they're taking, uh, four and a half days each way, so this is over a week that they're going to be on, on this trip, depending on how much time that they were actually planning to spend with Jesus. But the scripture is clear. They are going to, from Jerusalem, to see Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't give us a lot of information about why they're making this trip beyond the assertion that just they are. The purpose is to come and see Jesus. We can extrapolate from, uh, from a lot of different sources maybe what they were after, but Mark doesn't make it clear. He just says they came to see Jesus. So we know that's their purpose. Now, with that as their purpose, let's look at a little bit of background of the guys that, that are, are heading out into the countryside to see Jesus. This is necessary to understand why the unfolding plan of God would come against the religion that, that was created, meaning to worship him. Why would Jesus be defying the thing that was created to worship God? We got to know a little bit about the background of these folks that are coming to challenge Jesus for that to come out. This also serves as an example for us, though. It serves as an example of what happens even now in times outside of this age, this historical period, when religion is created as an expression of worshiping the living God. The scribes and the Pharisees are leaders. They're leaders that write the law. They're, they're leaders that interpret the law. They're leaders that enforce the law. They do all of this for the Jews. They're, they're, they're teachers. They're authorities. They also come from wealthy and respected lines. So as history advanced, these groups inter interpret Scripture in order to create a paradigm of behavior that would help the, the nation of Israel obey the law and stay worthy, worthy of inclusion in the community of believers. They actually would just sit around and argue about what it would look like, and whoever won the argument would then dictate this is what it, what it looks like to be worthy. As hit, history advanced, the law that came from God, the law that we know in the Old Testament, was interpreted into what would become the Mishnah in about 200 AD. Now this is a collection of finally of writing down oral tradition, this, this written document in, in 200 AD, it survived as the oral tradition that was known as scribal law. Scribal law is really the thing that Jesus is coming against. Scribal law was the interpreted mechanism for how to keep scriptural law. Scribal law told the followers of God how to keep the law that came from God. It was attempts to define how God wanted his people to behave. 
This kind of starts to feel a little bit uncomfortable when we put it like that, right? I mean, I, I'm, am I the only one that feels uncomfortable with that? I feel, especially standing where I am, I feel uncomfortable with this. Now consider how this is alive and well today. Well, actually, before we consider how it's alive and well today, let's also remember that, that while they began with the intent, they began with the intent of lining out what it meant to follow God, which we can say that's a good intent. We can give them that. Their starting place was actually a healthy thing. They wanted to figure out a way to describe what it meant to follow God. But what they became was a group with power that lined out what it meant to be Jewish. And they declared that to be the same as following God. So they created a law, a system of behavior that defined what it was to be Jewish, and then they said that if you're Jewish, you actually follow God. Imagine the danger if we were to do that today. Let me tell you what it is to be Christian and if you do that, you're a Christian, and oh, by the way, that means that you're good with God just because you did these things. Consider how that is alive and well today. How humans attempt to create a system of laws or behaviors that demonstrate what they think it is to be Christian, and then they declare that the same as following Christ, and they hold people to that standard. That's what Jesus is coming against. Think about reading the words of Calvin or Arminius, or Olstein in place of the words of Jesus or Peter or Paul. What might have had a noble beginning, an attempt to help people understand and relate to God, becomes religion created by men, defined by a template of behavior that requires repetition rather than relationship. Scribal law took what the scribes thought was vital from scriptural law, from the law given by God, and it was distilled down to behaviors that, if followed, would satisfy scripture. Over centuries, this led to a, ra a reality that you don't even need to know God. You don't need to know what God said. You just need to know what the scribes di dictate. How dangerous to not know what the Word of God says. This is not a relational expression. This is a religious expression. One that allows a person to stay worthy to community without even believing in, without having faith in, or without even knowing the God that they were told that they're serving. To be a good religious person, you don't need to know God at all. To be a good religious teacher, not only do you not need to know God at all, you don't need to teach anything about God because scribal law begins to trump Scripture. Now, kind of getting back into the text and, and what's happening, observing in the text that people are flocking to Jesus, and we've been seeing this really from like Mark 2 forward, that people are flocking to Jesus. They're hearing the signs and wonders. They're hearing the teaching that he's delivering. 
and, and applying what, what religion, um, with what the religious leaders do when they find him that we just read, we can infer that they're traveling in order to observe and correct behavior of Jesus that, that, that might tend to fall outside of their context for religious expression. They want to correct Jesus, bring him back in line, and not create a disrup- disruption or a destruction of the power they had over the people. So immediately, right off the bat, they find what they come to look for. They're not really even looking for the teaching. They're not looking for the signs and wonders. They're not looking for God. Immediately, they find a fault in Jesus that disqualifies Jesus as a teacher, and by extension, disqualifies all of, all of his followers. They are clearly in violation of scribal law. They are clearly in violation of the the ceremony and the pattern, the procedure, the ritual that one would have to go through that would make them worthy of eating and being in community. Clear violation of ancient tradition that they have no reason to not know. The disciples... By extension, Jesus did not follow the strict guidelines that detailed how a Jew ought to wash their hands in order to remain worthy of inclusion in community. This is what they present to Jesus. This is their gotcha card. They present it to him. And Jesus responds. But he responds by speaking past the behavior that the religious leaders are scrutinizing, and he utters a word of defiance that will enrage every religious person that ever existed. Hypocrite. One way that we can test how religious we are is how much that word bothers us. Because when we move beyond the religion and into the relationship, if you were to call me a hypocrite, the right answer is you're right. I am a hypocrite trying not to be. I'm working in a process every day that gets me closer to not being a hypocrite, but right now I'm a hypocrite. If you don't believe me, follow me home and watch me drive through the heights. (laughs) I don't want to do it, and I want to blame everybody in front of me for making me do whatever I'm going to do that'll show I'm a hypocrite. I'm a work in progress or process. It'll come someday, but you can call me a hypocrite and you're correct. hypocrite. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, Jesus is is charging them with creating a system of obedience that allows them to not actually submit to the will of God. He is accusing them of a selfish expression of being Jewish that allows one for the control of people, but also for the guaranteeing of my own comfort, my own safety, and also, in addition to my own comfort and my own safety, I am able to do this religious thing in such a way that it, that it will free me and excuse me from the consequences of, a, of following God in order to maintain all of my comfort, all of my safety, and all of my prosperity. Indirectly, or maybe quasi-directly, Jesus is pointing out that you can wash your hands according to scribal law. You can scrub them things clean. 
but you cannot clean a selfish heart. There is not water in the world. There is not soap in the world. There is not a scrub brush with bristles that that will stand up enough to clean a filthy heart. It does not matter how many times you go through the ritual of washing your hands. The same scribes that require strict hand washing also allow and operate within a mechanism that gives excuse from scriptural law. The example that Jesus presents here is perfect, and it shows what happens when religious people are in control of money. Jesus is presenting scriptural law that command, there's commandments that tell us to honor our parents. We have a a member of our congregation that is walking a testimony out of this right now, and uh, we see him every now and then on on Sunday morning, um, and I know that he's watching, and so we are praying for you. Um, This man is, is caring for his parents in, in a way that, that is nothing short of heroic. He has brought his parents into his home. He's built them a place where they can stay. He's, as they've deteriorated, he has sacrificed himself to take care of them. And, and he's also dealing with, um, with dementia and, and Alzheimer's that actually changed the relationship. And he's struggling every day to, to work past what he's getting in communication, but with what he knows that he should do for his parents that, that he is obligated to serve. And it, it's a fascinating story, but it's also one that, that you, can see the, the, you can see the cost and the consequence of that kind of love. He's a phenomenal man, and he's an example that I try to follow. That is scriptural law that Jesus told us to take care of one another, but especially to take care of our parents. But alongside scriptural law, we've got the scribal law that Jesus is, is attacking. There's a practice known as korban. This is a very useful practice for the religious people because this really is, is brilliant. If you, like, you think about the mind that thought this up, this is just brilliant. Diabolical, but brilliant. This practice of korban, it, it, it means that, that if you were to dedicate something to God, then you don't actually have to give it to anyone else because if you did that, you'd be giving away what what you'd already given to God. It belongs to God, and so I can't give it to them. You don't actually have to give something up because even though this korban means it has to remain in your possession because you've got to take care of it now because it belongs to God, but you don't actually have to give it to anybody. You can dedicate it to God, and then it's off limits. So everything I own... It's like, I feel like, like Michael Scott when he just declares bankruptcy. I just, I just declare Corban over everything. And then I don't have to give anything to God because I already did. Even though I didn't, but I already did. And so what happened is instead of taking care of the poor, instead of taking care of their parents, instead of taking care of the lost, they just declare Corban. I would take care of them if I had something to give them, but I don't. What's in your bank account? Well, nothing of mine. This is how the wealthy got more wealthy. This is how the poor got more poor because people would just declare Corban and be clean. My hands are clean. That belongs to God. I don't have to give it up. My hands are clean. 
I don't have to allow anybody else access to what I have. This is mine. Corban is pretty useful. And Corban is pretty evil. So, a person can lose place in community for not following the hand-washing steps. But if you refuse to help someone in need, you can be in good standing with community so long as you declare Corban over your possessions. Corban excuses you from actually caring about the things that God cares about. It creates a selfish religion that allows the religious to ignore those in need of compassionate rescue. They miss the point that the law of God, that the law that God gave, that the law that that God created, the intent of Scripture was about living as an expression of him to others, not living as an expression of him to me and allowing me to grow in wealth, safety, and comfort. The law was about others, not about me. So Jesus is calling all of this out. He takes it a step deeper. From rituals that aim to make us worthy, he applies this defiance to actions that do the same. And now you can see the utter defiance because after laying that smack down on the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, he's not even talking to them anymore. I mean, how awesome is that? Like, th- this is the, just like the, the power of, of our Savior. He, he smacks them down and then he just kind of pushes them aside and he just speaks straight to the crowd. You're in your place. Now shut up so I can get on with my work. Verse 14, then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. Now we're talking about worth. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd. His disciples asked him what he meant by the parable that he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, It's what comes from the inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these vile things come from within. They are not what defile you. This is a pretty awesome example of Jesus fulfilling the law with this statement. Jesus is showing us that cleanliness, read worthiness, is not achieved through ritual, 
It's not achieved through behavior. It's not achieved from what we bring in. It's not achieved because cleanliness and worthiness are not designed to be achieved. They're designed to be demonstrated. Not achieved, but demonstrated. Demonstrated by what comes out of our heart. What shows uncleanliness is what we express. And that expression demonstrates what's inside. If we're about division, if we're about conflict, if we're about greed and lustful desire, slander, the destruction of other people, pride, all of these things cannot be corrected by washing our hands in the proper manner. Out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. With this comment, scribal law has been completely and utterly defied. Scribal law has been destroyed. Scribal law no longer has a place. Our relationship with God cannot be demonstrated by ritual repetition, but by a posture evidenced of how we love him and how we love our neighbors as ourselves. Dividers, slanderers, self-righteous, greed, thieves, murderers, adulterers, all testify by their actions that they don't know God. But we can modify that statement too and say that that action shows that they don't know God yet. That yet is pretty cool. Even with clean, well-washed hands, it's possible to not know God. Now, moving from that, Jesus isn't done in, in uh, Mark chapter 7, and this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because it took me decades to actually figure out what the heck Jesus was talking about. It is one of the most uncomfortable passages, I think, that I ever read. And so we get to jump into that next, Mark seven twenty four, going through verse 30. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north into the region of Tyre. That is the key to understanding this passage. If you look at a map, what you see that Jesus just did is he stepped into the land that he was not supposed to go. He stepped into the land where by definition of geography and history, he was stepping into the land where nothing was clean. He was stepping into the land where nothing was worthy. He was stepping outside of the boundaries of the nation of Israel. This move right here, Mark 7, 24. If you want to know if Jesus loves you at all, this is the only verse that you need to know. That Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He left because he was coming after us. So hold that for a second. He went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. <coughs> Since she was a Gentile, born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children. 
my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. This is why I had such a problem with this, because this doesn't sound like Jesus to me. She replied, that's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. At first glance, this is one of those hard passages that seem to fall outside of the character of Jesus. What did he just do? He just called this, this woman a dog, and by extension, her daughter? That's really not what's going on. Now, some, some scholars tried to, like, dilute this down and say, well, there's a lot of different ways that, that you could call somebody a dog. Like, I could say, you're a dirty dog. Or I could be like, what's up, dog? I don't think Jesus was saying that <laughs> in, in this. And so I think that, that we're, that's a stretch to, to make it say that. And we don't need to be Jesus' defender. We don't have to be the defense counsel for Jesus because he can do it all on his own. And what he's doing here actually is one of the most amazing acts of mercy and compassion in all of Scripture, and it's one that demonstrates how much he loves us. He is calling out more scribal law about who is unclean, not what is unclean, not what actions are unclean, but who is unclean. Who is unworthy to be included in the community of those that God loves? If we look at this without going into the depth of what's going on, we see that he calls this lady and, and her people dogs. He chooses not to offer compassionate rescue, which is just crazy. This woman is scared for her daughter and he's not going to help her. But that's not what's happening here. We have to keep in mind of where this is happening. This is taking place outside of the Holy Land. No word of God would travel outside of the Holy Land because the people just wouldn't take it there. They're not going to take the word of God to the unclean. Outside of Palestine, outside of, of this, this land, this boundary, these boundaries, the, the, really, when you get to a boundary, I don't know if you've ever actually seen a boundary in, in the ground. I remember one time my grandparents took me to the Four Corners, you know, where, where Colorado, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico meet, and I'm like thinking, like, this is going to be pretty cool. We draw these boundaries on, on, on maps, and then when we actually get to where they are, like, there's actually no line on the ground, and so, you, like, you don't feel any different. And even when you try to, like, like, be in all four states at one time, it doesn't feel like you're in, it just, you're just on all fours, and it's uncomfortable. And then when you get to be older, then your, your shoulders just hurt. Anyway, but the point, the point I'm making here is that, that Jesus is going and taking the word of God to a place where it hasn't been because humans didn't take it. Because to go to that place would make you unclean. To talk to those people would make you unclean. In fact, even if you were to brush against them as you're walking down the street, you would have to go through a cleanliness ritual in order to be able to worship again because you touched the unclean. Where Jesus is going is off limits. Outside of the Holy Land. Outside of the context of the nation of Israel. Now what if we started talking about outside the context of the church? Hold on. Jesus intentionally left Israel 
and intentionally entered into a place where all people, by definition, were unworthy of community and unworthy of the grace of God. People that would cause a clean person to be unclean. Jesus is in the land of the Gentile. And this story and this exchange with this woman announced the fullness of his mission. Now, what we just saw him do before, Jesus had, had just completely destroyed scribal law. He defied it. He, he demonstrated the lack of power that it had. He wiped out the, the distinction between clean and unclean food. He does the same for clean and, and unclean <coughs> excuse me, actions, and now he's extending that to clean and unclean people. Jesus went into a land that the nation of Israel had not yet gone. I mean, except to, like, you know, destroy and pillage. But a land that the nation of Israel had not gone with the good news. He did not go. This is an important distinction. He did not go to be among strangers. He went to claim his inheritance. This woman and her daughter and the person sitting next to you and the person sitting in your seat represent the inheritance of Jesus. Now we know with the unfolding plan of God First, the gospel is offered to the nation of Israel. The people chosen by God that, that he would work his reconciliation through. And Jesus did that. He fed the children. But after he fed the children, there is food left over. This food was nourishment. This nourishment represented a new covenant, a new understanding of what it was to be worthy, a defiance of religious exception Jesus in this passage announced his inheritance he announced his mission and he announced what worthiness truly is faith <coughs> like the woman asking for her child to be delivered from evil faith like this woman asking for compassionate rescue Faith that sees the love of God destroy paradigms of religion. Because of Jesus, no longer was it, but maybe for us we should say no longer is it, required to have a priest enter the Holy of Holies on your behalf and offer a sacrifice so you can be forgiven. No longer would rituals of cleanliness dictate if we could be either included in, com in community or even be able to approach the throne of God. No longer would social and cultural barriers dictate who was worthy and who wasn't. 
No longer. Because what we see in this passage, what we see from the defiance of our Savior, what we find at the end of this passage is the same thing that we will celebrate together in 35 days. We know that Jesus is Lord of all. And in defiance of the kingdom of the world, he came to claim what's his. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask for your presence with us now. Father, as we see the extension of your love come outside of the nation of Israel and into the places that represent your mission, I pray that we could see that as he crossed that boundary, as he moved outside of Galilee, as he entered into the region of Tyre, I pray that we could see that he did that with us on his mind. I pray, Father, that we could see the love, the awesome, unrelenting love of God that would cause Jesus to leave. The boundaries of the nation of Israel to come after us. Father, I pray that we would know what that opens for us. The possibilities that that exist for us. The reality that exists for us. The new covenant that we are invited to, to join together with you and with each other. Father, as we are able to see that you did that for us, that you came to the region of Tyre for us, I pray that that inward knowledge would become the outward expression that we would see not for me, but for you. I pray that we would see not just mine, but yours. And I pray, Father, that as we feel the presence of your love, that it would be so overwhelming, so all-encompassing, so surrounding, so complete, that all we could do is share it. And so, Father, as we worship you now, Would you help us to join that reality and share it in Jesus' name? Amen.